This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 20th of May 2023. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. And coming up on today's programme, Gavin Plumley, the cultural historian, will join me to look at what's happening around the world. And we'll keep it global as the international director of Hay Festival, Christina Fuentes, tells us about the Eurovision of books. We'll take you for a stroll around the harbour of Portofino and Andrew Muller will look back on the last seven days. That's all coming up here on Monocle on Saturday. First, the news. Syrian President Bashar al-Assad was given a warm welcome at an Arab summit yesterday, winning a hug from Saudi Arabia's crown prince at a meeting of leaders who'd shunned him for years in a policy shift opposed by the US and other Western powers. Crown Prince Mohammed said he hopes Syria's return to the Arab League leads to the end of its crisis, 12 years after Arab states suspended Syria as it descended into a civil war that's killed more than 350,000 people. The Russian branch of environmental group Greenpeace says it will shut down after authorities declare the group an undesirable organisation, effectively banning it from operating. Born out of the anti-nuclear counterculture movement of the late 1960s, Greenpeace is one of the largest and most recognisable environmental organisations in the world, operating in over 50 countries. Republican U.S. Senator Tim Scott has entered the 2024 presidential race, according to a filing with the U.S. election regulator. As a black conservative, Scott is a rarity in a country where politics are sharply divided along racial lines. Some 92% of black voters backed Democrat Joe Biden in the 2020 presidential election, while 55% of white voters backed Trump. Scott's entrance into the race puts him in direct competition with Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, who launched her campaign in February. And a team led by Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin has won a coveted 3.4 billion NASA contract to build a spacecraft to fly astronauts to and from the moon's surface, a breakthrough for the company two years after it lost out to Elon Musk's SpaceX in another competition. Blue Origin plans to build its 52-foot-tall Blue Moon lander in partnership with Lockheed Martin, Boeing, software firm Draper and robotics firm Astrobotic. And that's your Monocle Radio News. Hello and welcome to Monocle on Saturday. I'm Georgina Godwin and with me in the studio is the leading cultural historian Gavin Plumley. Good morning to you, Gavin. Good morning. Lovely to be back. Uh, your your book, A Home for All Seasons, is doing incredibly well at the moment. Uh, it's just gone into second printing. Yes, yeah, second print of its paperback. It's been out for two weeks, so that's not going badly. I'm really, really thrilled to hear that. And it's sort of out there, available in all good bookshops, all that sort of stuff. So, it's um, yeah, I'm really excited about that. Well, we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, a little bit later on in the programme. Uh, First, though, uh, the world is abuzz with summits. (laughs) It's really been a week for it. And I suppose the one that's really dominating the headlines this morning is the G7. Zelensky has just arrived. And really, the G7 should be called the anti-Russian seven, um, because (laughs) that seems to be the main focus of everything. Um, Yesterday, the UK um, government announced its latest round of sanctions, 
connected to Russia's energy, metals, defence, transport and financial sector, according to an endlessly scrolling um, set of news from um, The Guardian. Um, The FT pointed to the fact that Russian ships, aircraft and diamonds were going to be um, uh, next on the list. Um, And rather amusingly, Russia has responded by listing 500 US citizens who are now banned, including Barack Obama, who I don't think was probably planning um, a holiday to Siberia in the near future. But um, that's how they've um, retaliated on that particular front. Mm. Uh, As you say, Zelensky's just arrived there, but he stopped off in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, and I think, you know, he's he is an extraordinary performer in these um, these summits and um, the Washington Post <coughs> really saying how he calibrates his approach so brilliantly when he turns up um, at these events, talking to the Arab League about Muslim unity, they point out in the Washington Post this morning, and anti-imperialism, and celebrating Ukraine's um, Crimean Tatar population. He called it the centre of Muslim culture in Ukraine, though, as we heard on the news, perhaps some of that um, overshadowed by the fact that Assad uh, was there for the first time in 12 years and a man who has, in fact, welcomed Russian bombers into his um, country previously. So, I mean... there's there's too much news, actually, to get through. <laughs> I sat there sort of from dawn this morning going, how on earth do you condense all of this? And if The Guardian can't do it, I'm struggling. So there we are. <laughs> but there is, a, I mean, there's a huge amount of coverage around about it. I, I was very interested sort of watching the, the television coverage of the G7. It's clearly bucketing down in Japan. <laughs> <laughs> lots and lots of rain. A few uh, interviews with, with uh, Rishi Sunak, who was clearly doing the, the press round, and, and dodging uh, questions left left, right and centre. I mean, he just kept repeating the five things that he's concerned about and really wasn't going to go off script. I think we'll talk about him a little bit later on in the programme. But it did seem that this is a this is a wonderful media opportunity, isn't it? Everybody's there and all the leaders are opening up. They are opening up. But as um, one of the comments I read about Sunak this week, um, not in relation to something we'll be talking about later, but is that once we get down to the minnows in the stream of the Tory party, that is what you're going to get from our Prime Minister. He doesn't have that ingenuity. He doesn't have the ability to calibrate, as Zelensky is showing. He is not someone who has that fluidity of approach. So, asked a question, he'll come straight back with, as you say, the script that he has been given. And, you know, bless him, he isn't the most... um, non-wooden of performers <laughs> um, and that really that really does come across at these moments there isn't that sort of hail fellow well met approach that you know Biden can do so so instantly um, and and as I say Zelensky has with great bravura but it's not just them of course that are meeting this week just to kind of add to our trio of summits um, China obviously not um, going across the sea to Japan is um, focusing instead on uh, Central Asia and the creation of a Eurasian hub with uh, Kazakhstan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, you know, all the stans are there in Xi'an and Xi Jinping, I suppose, trying to make sure that he again is the um, point of orbit for these states rather than Putin is... You know, they're all playing the same game. How to form, as it were, this ring of fire around Putin? Well, some, 
China and indeed Assad probably just keeping their toes in those other waters too. It's mm. a fascinating week mm. for this kind of international um, uh, playbook. So China and these five former Soviet republics, uh, I think they, they have an agreement now to deepen cooperation on energy, infrastructure, finance, trade and security. And I think that's really interesting given where these countries are, all of course neighbours of Russia. And it does mean, we think, a move away from their dependence on Russia. Yeah, former Soviet states and also within it, um, rather intriguingly, the idea of opening up this China to Europe rail link that bypasses um, Russia too. That's been spoken of. And basically routing us back to the Silk Route of ancient time. And that, of course, travelled through these um, these states. So Xi Jinping's sort of evoking a much richer history than any connection with the Soviet past. Mm, absolutely. Now, uh, Gavin, we were talking about your book earlier, and I want to bring you some more big book news, because Hay Festival in Wales begins next week. It's 10 days of literature and arts. It invites audiences to imagine the world as it is and as it might be. And this year, there's a brand new event. We've been talking about Eurovision for weeks now, but this <laughs> is the Eurovision book competition. So I'm joined from Madrid by the International Director of the Hay Festival, Cristina Fuentes La Roche. Cristina, good morning to you. Good morning. It's lovely, it's lovely to speak to you again. Let's talk about your Eurovision of books. What is it? Yes, so it's uh, basically this year coinciding with our Eurovision being in the UK, we decided to put together this Eurovision of books. Uh, and we asked for the audience to select the favorite books from across Europe, and we received thousands and thousands of um, of of, um, of books and authors. And um, the idea was that the the book has to be published after 1956. That's when Eurovision started, and um, and then we put a list together from the of these 37 books. And the list is amazing. It really showcases the, you know, literature, um, how to promote literature across borders, uh, empathy, um, you know, different voices, different uh, genre. So, you know, um, it, it has been an exciting uh, process getting all the nominations, getting the list together. And we will discuss um, this list of 37 books in Hay and next, I think on the 2nd of June in a panel of readers. Uh, maybe they come, the idea is not to come with an overall winner, but to discuss uh, uh, the book selected. Uh, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful event. And just what a, what a lovely way to, to look at Eurovision and indeed to discover new literature. I mean, I'd see I mean, from Australia, you've got, you've got Mark, Marcus Zusak, you've got from the Czech Republic, Unbearable Lightness of Being. I mean, the, the huge kind of gamut that these books run, very, very diverse and, and lovely. Uh, Christina, of course, Hay is on for 10 days. And within that, you have so many events. It is, I think, probably the most exciting and certainly one of the, the, the biggest uh, Book and Ideas Festival in this country. And of course, you're the international director. It's on all over the world. Yes, I mean, what we want to showcase in Hay Wales as well is to bring the world to Hay. I mean, of course, a festival needs to have a local content, national content, but as well speak to the rest of the world. And literature hasn't got frontiers. And, and, and the idea is that uh, we create a forum to, to discuss ideas. We are working a lot now with Ukraine. Last year, we did like, uh, we collaborated uh, with a festival in Lviv, Lviv Book Forum in a digital capacity. And we are with uh, open societies highlighting 
Ukrainian talent across our festivals, not only in Wales, but as well in Latin America, in Spain. And uh, this year, for example, in Hague, we are having Alexandra Matvichuk. She was the, she's the director of, of uh, Civil Liberties, the organization that won the Nobel Prize uh, for Peace this year, last year. And she's going to talk about what's going on in Ukraine and, um, and, the, and, the, and the fight, the internal fight they have in, uh, um, in the society. We're having amazing authors like Sergi Sadan, Victoria Bellim, uh, Henry March, the, the neuro, uh, neuroscientist, is going to talk about his project helping, and Rachel Clark helping hospitals in Ukraine. So there is going to be a lot of Ukrainian content. And as well, of course, in Hay Wells, within the, you know, the most loved uh, national treasures, we have got many voices and themes from all over the world. We have, we're talking about Afghanistan as well, what's going on there with Liz Doucette, with Shasia Haya. We are talking about um, um, a lot, lot of talent from, uh, you know, Margaret Atwood from, uh, from Canada, Richard Ford from the state, Barbara Kinslover, a Hispanic content as well, Pilar Quintana, amazing Colombian writer, the superstar from the Spanish uh, uh, literature, Irene Vallejo. She wrote this amazing book about the history of, uh, of the book, that uh, Papyrus, that uh, in Spain and Latin America has sold most, more than 6 million copies. Um, we are having as well um, uh, discussions about, um, you know, the future of Europe with Misha Glaney, Quintana Tull, uh, etc. So, you know, we are having a lot of... Uh, international content mixed together with um, the with music and comedy, you know, more than 500 events. And I will say 150 are all from across the world. Uh, just amazing. And, and I mean, we know this happens every year, but every year you pull off this extraordinary cultural event. Um, and I'm just so looking forward to it, Christina. It starts on the 2nd of June. Uh, no, so, sorry, it, it, it starts on the 25th of May and it runs to the 4th of June. Is that right? That's right. Exactly. The, the, the first two days is a school program, Thursday, Friday, and then a week that it coincides with half term with, with you know, almost 500 events for, 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 for children as well, for young people and for the general audience. And I think there is always something, uh, you know, we talk about local issues, about um, uh, the, the River Y. To, to global issues. And I think that's the mix, uh, the interesting mix of ideas we can, we put together in, um, in Hay. Yeah. So and we are very happy, Georgina, to have you there as, uh, as, uh, as always. And, you know, and to, to see the world from different perspectives, to discover new voices, to rethink. I think we need to reevaluate, rethink how we want to live in, in, the, in, in, in the future years. We need to, to think new ways to be more sustainable, to, you know, and to have as well fiction and imagination to to guide us. Christina, I'm so looking forward to it. I'm thinking that this year I probably won't drive you back after a party and get stopped by the police, hopefully. <laughs> Georgina, so many anecdotes um, <laughs> and shit adventures. Uh, uh, that's Christina Fuentes there, who is the International Director of Hay Festival. And Hay begins on the 25th uh, and it, of, of May. It runs until the 4th of June. Now, Galvin, both you and I are going to be there. Indeed, this is my... Um Second year running at Hay. Last year, I actually launched my book, A Home for All Seasons, there uh, in a lovely conversation with Horatio Clare. And this year, I'm uh, changing seats. I'm chairing um, and chairing a, a fa an absolutely fascinating event on the last day when I'm 
speaking to Alice Farnham and Leah Broad about their two new books. Um, Leah's written uh, an amazing group biography about four women who have been forgotten, really, in the history of classical music. And Alice Farnham is writing about her life and about conducting as a woman um, uh, within the classical music world. I'm really looking forward to that. And I'm very lucky that uh, me, as a uh, white male, has been allowed to chair such an event. I'm going to be suitably chastised, I think, for a sort of an androgyne approach to history. Um, and I'm really, I'm loving those books. Um, and I'm also hoping that my um, paperback might be in the Hay shop as well, because well, it is a local issue. It, I'm, I live just 20 minutes away from Hay, so um, so I'm very uh, very lucky to have it on my doorstep and be able to pop in whenever I want. Tell us a little bit more about your book. Uh, well, we had that lovely conversation on Meet the Writers, didn't we? Um, it's, it's, it's a book about uh, my timber-framed home in the middle of Herefordshire, just over the border from Hay, and a book really about what the house has told me. Um, it was built in the 16th century and that was a period where we well the the people who built my house uh, were going through exactly what we're going through climate change it was called the little ice age but it was climate change and they were having problems you know with their relationship with Europe and they were facing plagues and all sorts of stuff and that feeds uh, through the narrative of my book though it's a bit of a it's not necessarily pure history because there's a weird little mix of um, landscape and nature writing and indeed a memoir about me all woven through it um, it's love a really lovely book and as you say people can listen to a full chat about it on on the archives of of meet the writers uh, another big uh, literature event happening this very weekend in fact at the British Library Uh, and that's the European Festival of Literature and there are 30 authors coming from all over Europe uh, having huge discussions on very, very big topics. I'm chairing one tomorrow on on history and literature with with writers from some of the most sort of conflict-ridden places in Europe. It's going to be absolutely fascinating and their work is so, so different from a a graphic novel to to a a very witty book. It's just, um, it's going to be a lot of fun, I think. Um, And we're talking about Europe and, of course, we've been talking about the summits going on. But while all that's happening, let's just focus our lens at home on Britain because Sunak's away, but problems continue here for him. Yeah, the the mice are playing, shall we say. (laughs) Um, uh, I mean, one of the things that really has dominated a lot of comment pieces this weekend, Jonathan Friedland in The Guardian, a huge essay at the front of the life and arts section in the FT, as well as in the New Statesman, is a quotation of um, Nigel Farage, of all people, or Nigel Farage, as I'm absolutely convinced we should call him, um, (laughs) which is that he said on uh, Newsnight earlier this week that Brexit has failed. And what, of course, he meant is the version of Brexit that he absolutely believed in, the inviolate principle of breaking away from Europe has failed. But of course, you know, that admission does also point to what everyone else, I think, is beginning to see, Um, even those, uh, well, certainly moderate Brexiteers, that actually it's not all stacking up. Um, And as Andrew Marr writes in a particularly comprehensive um, essay in The New Statesman, he said... The failure of the Johnson Trust and Sunak governments to find a business-friendly, voter-friendly plan for post-Brexit Britain is what the immigration arguments and the collapse of the retained EU law bill is really all about. It's the moment when headline-grabbing optimism met the obdurate real world. Mm. And I think that's 
And this is all playing out. Sunak's gone off to Japan, and now we have this extraordinary ragtag bunch of no-hopers um, from the Tory party. Suella Breverman, um, Douglas Murray um, on the periphery, obviously not a party member, but anyone willing to stand up for them whenever he's given a chance. And Priti Patel saying this is a moment to recalibrate. And what they're basically recalibrating is a massive swing to the right, um, retrenching, holding their, you know, their gilded icons of their great hero, Boris Johnson, and showing that actually what is happening, as always happens with administrations, is a split is inevitable. Sunak, for all his faults, is holding a line which is much more rational, much more balanced, and they don't like it because the temple of Brexit you know, is having its tables overturned by Sunak as they see it. Mm. And the reason it is, is because he is a pragmatist. And he knows full well, if he doesn't pursue that, there's a general election around the corner. And certainly the jungle drums are absolutely showing that they're going to be trounced. And I think what's interesting about this party split, and it's also within... The Liberal Democrats talking about coalitions or not coalitions is all pointing to, I hope, if we want to seize the optimism from this, and I'll try, is maybe this shows that grand coalition politics are possible here in the UK. Let the right wing go off. Let the far right go off and do its thing. Let the far left go off. And let's try and find a much more moderate international cooperative way forward i'm not talking about a return to the eu but certainly that is as ma says in the new statesman business friendly and voter friendly mm, absolutely and i think we've got more on that tomorrow on uh, on meet the writers i've been speaking to uh, ian dunt uh, who is absolutely excellent on this he's talking about what's wrong in politics and how we can fix it and he was he was talking about sort of brexit and how he sees the future which is that that he believes we will rejoin, but in the interim, he thinks that there'll be a lot of laws brought in that will kind of align us more and more with Europe. It'll be a, yeah. a gradual process. Anyway, that's a, a discussion that's happening uh, on the show tomorrow at noon. Now, it's Saturday, so we have a taste of the Mediterranean for you. We sent Monocle's deputy head of radio and the concierge producer Tom Webb to the Italian coastal village Portofino to uncover the hidden gems of the world-famous harbour. Famous for its unique beauty combining Mediterranean nature with one of the most picturesque harbours on the Italian coast. Surrounded by its iconic brightly coloured pastel buildings, Portofino is the perfect spring and autumn time destination. But its real beauty lies in the undiscovered gems in the surrounding areas. The first spot is around the coast to the neighbouring San Frutioso village. Despite being a very sleepy little fishing village, it's incredibly choppy today. You can probably hear the huge swell coming into the harbour. There's only two ways to get here. By boat, which has just pulled in now, which is a little bit too rough for me, which is why I've done the fabulous five-kilometre hike from Portofino, which you can do in around an hour and a half. It's challenging in parts, but there's wonderful, rewarding viewing platforms the whole way across. 
On your hike back, the footpath passes the unmissable, brand-new Osteria dei Copelli, nestled in the hills above Portofino. You're seeing our favorite part from Portofino, the view that the locals prefer when they have a day off and when they can just go and have a quiet space away from the busy and the crowdedness of the Piazzetta. For us, this is a little heaven on earth. Tatiana Viacava, the sixth generation in the family-owned eco-farm, invited me for lunch. The Osteria dei Copelli is a quite particular place. We open with a one-table-only setting. So what we do is we have one reservation for lunch or for dinner, and we work with a seasonal menu that changes almost every two weeks. We try to really focus on our vegetables and everything that comes from our garden and our produce and really create a unique seasonal experience in Portofino. Once nestled down in the spectacular gardens, the chef Alessio Trezzanini presented the menu. We start with the amuse-bouche, so with the entree, which is a vegetable pie with our veggie from the garden. Then we have a starter, which is a velouté with some fermenting on top, and the velouté is leek and potato. Then we have a first course, which is pasta. So it's a stuffed pasta with herbs inside and spinach, chard, and a pesto, which is a broccoli pesto. Then we have and some fermenting, which are red onions. Then we have a cauliflower as main. So it's a cauliflower steak with um, still fermenting, so red cabbage and white cabbage, some bits and bobs, so veggie like cavolo romanesco, and a reduction of the cooking liquid from the cauliflower, which is low cooked. Then we have a pre-dessert, which is burrata and pearl. And then we have a dessert, which is a basil tart, and white chocolate lemon. For those that can't face the hike, the restaurant offers a complimentary return ride from Portofino in an authentic Piaggio Porta. The vehicle is the only one that fits the dramatic hillside roads. Further in the foothills are the vineyards that surround Portofino, home to La Portofinese's sommelier, Marta Nicolai. Vermentino is a local variety of Italy and is one of the 300 varieties that we have here. In particular, I'm talking about the Liguria region. Otherwise, Vermentino can be cultivated also in Sardinia and Tuscany. Of course, here we have a particular microclimate, an important influence from the seaside and the surroundings that are mainly Mediterranean flora. So, this kind of variety has a really strong minerality and a salinity that uh, is given by the sea influence. The wine is uh, well balanced and uh, of course uh, the aromatic herbs influences the aroma of this wine. So of course this wine has to be tasted here in Portofino to really understand what uh, you are tasting. To end the day, Tatiana left me with a few more recommendations off the beaten track. If you stay at the hillside, you can go to the Mulino de Gasseta, where we have our hop yards. You can also visit our eco farm, where we have our wine and our beehives. Or down by the port, we have Ucaban, which is a brand new opening. It's a wine bar shaped as a sailing boat. Or, of course, the lighthouse, which is an unmissable spot when you visit Portofino.
Well, our tummies are rumbling here. (laughs) I mean, that really does get your taste buds tingling. Uh, That was Monocle's deputy head of radio, Tom Webb, there. Um, Let's stay with the Mediterranean, in fact, uh, and uh, St Francis of Assisi, although hardly current. (laughs) No, hardly current. and died at the beginning of the 13th century. But there's a wonderful new exhibition at the National Gallery, which is reviewed by Michael Proger in this week's uh, New Statesman. And I went to see it last night. And he points to the fact that within a century, I think it is, of um, St. Francis's death, there were over 20,000 paintings of him. And this has continued, well, began a tradition that has continued throughout the centuries. And in fact, for the Nationals um, show, which is for free, um, it's downstairs in the main building. And I popped in there last night thinking I was going to be confronted by rather dreary um, religious artworks. But they're absolutely thrilling, even the oldest of them, and also the newest with um, Anthony Gormley in there and Richard Long. Amazing interventions in the space and this uh, fabulous... um, well, conversation between past and present. and um, and But I think the most thrilling is the 17th century um, Spanish um, artist, and in fact, Michael Proger really singles him out, um, uh, Zerberan, um, and the way the light captures this, um, this strange hermetic figure, you know, who could communicate with the birds. Um, and looking at the map of where he travelled and these incredible pictures... I wanted to go and drink a glass of Vermentino and sit, you know, sit in the Italian hills um, almost immediately. Um, and I, I just don't know any other exhibition which has had ancient iconography and a Marvel comic in the same uh, place. And I just, I re- I'm so glad that Michael Proger adored it as much as I did. It sounds amazing. I think it's that's really got wonderful. to be on the, on the, on the must-see list. Uh, listen, I could let you go now, but I've just spotted uh, an article in The Telegraph. And, and really, we haven't talked about dogs yet. And you, you and I have dogs that look very similar. Um, and I think we need to. So this this <laughs> this article is headlined, If your cocker spaniel is this colour, it's more aggressive than a Rottweiler. Um, and apparently, um, the, you know, I mean, cocker spaniels are the most family-friendly dogs imaginable. Uh, but if they're golden, um, then they might suffer from cocker rage, apparently. Well, um Yes, uh, I have heard about cocker rage and the, the, the fact that they see red. Um, sadly, my working cocker spaniel, Toby, um, passed away in in February. He d- died um, at a young age and he had, in fact, become quite aggressive um, um, at the end of his life, largely because of pain. Um, but actually, I... I don't. And I'm not buying this. He was a black dog, so I, 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 I don't buy the colour thing. I think, you know, I always say fundamentally all dogs, from a Shih Tzu to a Bull Mastiff, including Rottweilers and Cocker Spaniels, are fundamentally wonderful creatures. And I just blame the owners. So perhaps I should blame myself. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and certainly uh, my. Sprocker Spaniel, who's half Cocker, half um, Springer, uh, like yours, um, uh, Georgina, is um, he's called Nimrod, and he is absolutely angelic. So hopefully 
I've steered it. I think you probably have as well. Well, yes, I have a very happy dog, and I do think it's how they're brought up. But 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 this has got this actually very interesting article. It does back it up with figures, uh, and it says more than four percent of cockers were found to show signs of aggression, uh, and that, that's similar to that of the Chihuahua. Four point two percent of Chihuahuas <laughs> exhibit aggression. Um, but it does it does sort of back up this thesis of colour. You can read all about it in the Telegraph. Marvelous, um, Gavin Plumley. Thank you so much for for being on with me. Uh, and um, glorious to be here I'm, as ever. I'm very happy that that your book uh, is uh, Home for All Seasons is doing so well. Uh, and um, I'll see you in Hay. Fabulous. And finally, here's Andrew Muller with his wry take on the week. Have you ever done anything like this before? We learned this week that even the oversight of tens of millions of witnesses is no protection against robbery. We learned that Australia had once again been thwarted short of a rich and clearly merited victory in the Eurovision Song Contest by a combination of obviously deaf judges and obdurately philistine and probably just downright jealous continental publics. We learned that these backward thinkers, these envious troglodytes, had combined to deliver a paltry, wretched ninth place to Australia's magnificent entry, Perth-based prog-metal-concerned Voyager, although we, for one outraged whimsical news review, much prefer the pronunciation of Monocle's Eurovision desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Voyager, 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 Voyager... We learned instead that you Euro weirdos preferred this dismal drivel from like Legoland or somewhere. The studio mallet, if you would. We did at least learn of an overdue breakthrough in Australian-Portuguese relations as the Portuguese jury wisely awarded Voyageur no less than they were obviously due. Our 12 points go to Australia. We now pause for an appropriately considered reflection on the bond thus forged by these great nations from Monegal's Portuguese-Australian relations desk chief, Carlotta Rebello. Two points. Two points we got from the Australian jury. To hell with you. Thanks, Carlotta. Yes, we know Australia also got 12 points from the Icelandic jury, but we don't have any Icelanders in the building. Just two Finns, who, having been beaten into second place at Eurovision by their neighbours from Sweden, have descended into the frantic transports of inconsolable melodramatic histrionic shrieking to which their people are so famously prone. 
I am extremely sad, very unhappy. I have not been so bereft since that time I misplaced my favorite bucket. Anyway. Sticking with the subject of otherwise unemployable oddballs performing inexplicable material to an audience of the easily amused, we learned that the forces of British conservatism had convened their own version of CPAC, that annual American dingbat rodeo which, whatever its manifold flaws, does at least furnish the compilers of chucklesome monologues such as this with a pretty easy week. Hooray. We learned that the UK answer to CPAC is called the National Conservatism Conference, which they prefer to abbreviate to NatCon UK, which we are going to abbreviate further to NatConk, which we believe is about fair enough. Yeah. We learned when we looked into it a bit that NatConk has in fact been going on a few years now, but this was the year it went mainstream, a phrase which translates from journalism as we noticed it, and we learned of what a glorious bounty of easily mockable clips we had been overlooking. We also learned that NatConk was going to be a fearfully dangerous environment for straw men, as one speaker after another mounted the barricade in their head to face down legions of imaginary enemies. Among the speakers was Douglas Murray, and this is being played at the right speed. Go wrong. So sure, nationalism can go wrong. We know that. Religion can go wrong. We in Europe know that. But everything can go wrong. The Trojan Wars began because of love, and even the left have not yet suggested that as a result we should abandon love. Wouldn't open with it ourselves, but admire the landing being stuck on an event which likely never actually happened anyway. We also learned that Nat Conk enjoyed the blessing of one conservative totem of whom it is tempting to say she would not have been caught dead at any such fruitcake stall were it not for the fact that she apparently was. Lady Thatcher and I have been communing about national conservatism and this new movement, and I am happy to report that she is totally on board. We have not learned why the first eight Ronald Reagan impersonators Nat Conk tried were unavailable, though. We did learn that if you don't get married and have children, you're a communist. The normative family, held together by marriage, by mother and father sticking together for the sake of the children, and the sake of their own parents, and the sake of themselves, this is the only possible basis for a safe and successful society. We learned that Brussels sounds like more fun than it is usually given credit for. It's come to the point now where in Brussels you no longer have LGBTQ+. They're inventing a new letter to add to the LGBTQ+, almost every, every single day. And we learned that this is all normal. Extremely normal. Regular, standard, usual, and above all, normal. More likely what these comments show is that our opponents are completely out of touch. They're completely deranged by perfectly normal and widely supported ideas. But there's probably no reason to worry, really, about national conservatism, as political tendencies with a name that starts with national and end with ism hardly ever end regrettably. <coughs> Almost speaking of which...
Look, it's not the most compelling audio, but blame David Strogmuller, Green Party member of Austria's National Council, who recorded it. What you could just about hear there was a snippet of oratory by the Austrian of whom Austria prefers not to speak, being broadcast by pranksters to bewildered passengers, including Strogmuller, on a recent OBB railjet service from Bregenz to Vienna. And yes, we're sure it ran on time. So we learned that there are, in fact, worse things you can hear over the public address system of a train than the phrase rail replacement bus service. For Monocle Radio, I'm Andrew Muller. Many thanks to Andrew. And that's all for Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to our studio engineer in London, Nora Hull, and our producer, Isabella Jewell. Monocle on Saturday returns next weekend. Coming up uh, now, though, a look at the world of magazines with Monocle's senior correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, on the stack. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. <laughs>